The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Marianne Larned. She is the founding director of the Stone Soup Leadership Institute, which inspires people from all walks of life to work together to build a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. As the best-selling author of the Stone Soup for the World series, Ms. Larned uses the Stone Soup model to inspire everyone to share their time, talents, and resources. And as the founder of the Stone Soup Leadership Institute, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, she uses these inspiring stories to develop multicultural digital educational tools that empower young people to become local, national, and global leaders. Ms. Larned's passion for sustainability evolved from living and working alongside young people from island communities around the world, what she recognizes as the canaries in the coal mine of climate change. Welcome, Marianne. Hello, Melissa. Nice to meet you. It's great to have you with me. I know that your background is really well-suited for this work. You have degrees in education from the University of Massachusetts, You've gone to the Rudolf Steiner Institute, and you have a master's from Boston University in organizational development and business. How did you become inspired, though, and how did you start the Stone Soup Leadership Institute? Well, it's a metaphor. I had been working nationally with major corporations in different communities pioneering public-private partnerships and corporate social responsibility and the healthy communities movement. And it was quite a jet-set life, and I learned a lot, and we did a lot of great work, but I kept feeling there was something more I was being called to do. So I went for a walk on the beach in a place I'd never been and found a magic stone, and I sat with it for a few weeks, few months, And it turned into a book and the Institute. So it's a much longer story, but that's the short version. Yeah. Well, it's really remarkable because what you've collected are a hundred stories of young leaders around the globe who simply had, and I say use the word simply, they simply saw a problem and then they chose to take action on it. And I think it's almost easier for young people rather than older individuals to be able to speak so freely and openly about the problems that they see because there aren't political barriers and there aren't jobs that might get them fired if they spoke the truth. But young people do have a way of speaking the truth. And you've collected these truly life-changing stories of what you call young heroes And so I wanted to dive into some of those stories. Let me start out by just saying that you've got an intro by actor Ted Danson. How did you connect with him? 
Well, Walter Cronkite was the chairman of our board. Mr. Cronkite had called me out of the blue and wanted to make a television series on my first book. And after he passed, we had the Cronkite Awards ceremony while I was living on Martha's Vineyard. And we had invited Ted to receive the award on behalf of his work with Oceana. So he was planning on coming and wasn't able to, but he said next time. So I reached out to his staff and I said, maybe this could be the next time. So he was very gracious. We had a lovely Zoom call for about 40 minutes and, you know, he really wanted to be of service. He was really supportive of our work and what the Institute was about and had known of our work, but more importantly, really was committed to doing whatever we could to support the young people that are in the book. So it was great to work with him on it. He has a great line in here. Uh, He says, the scientists tell us that we only have 10 years to save our oceans. And one day I really hope my three-year-old granddaughter will be able to enjoy our oceans with her grandchildren. These really are urgent times. And before we were so focused on COVID, most of our attention was on this huge existential threat, which we face still today, and that is climate change. And so the title of this particular collection, Stone Soup for a Sustainable World, is all about how young people are dealing with climate catastrophe and environmental problems. Many of those, of course, include agriculture, food, and water. And I have certainly focused on those stories in particular, I thought that your introduction, your special appreciation for Walter Cronkite was also extremely worthy. You say that he felt strongly that the lack of an educated constituency was threatening our democracy, and that if people were uneducated about the issues, they would be more easily influenced by disinformation and distracted by fear tactics. That sums up a lot right there in those two sentences. And I'm so glad that you've used his voice in some of the video segments that you've even made from your stories. So I want to know, how did you choose the 100 stories that are included in this book? Well, it's a combination. You know, we had a nomination process from those that were in my first book. And so they had first rights to nominate someone that they might know. So, and many of the stories in the intergenerational chapter feature the children of some of the great leaders. And so I happen to know them well because of the work we did for the first book. And then so many stories were nominated through people that would send them to us and say, have you heard about this one or that? We probably had over a thousand stories that were nominated. Mm. So what we look for was a diversity where we feature young people in 38 countries. We also focus on solutions oriented. So we were looking for those that either had a website or social media or an organization or some kind of presence that if we were to shine the light on them, that they would be able to use that in a positive, productive way. So the goal was not just to have a story, but to have, as you know, at the end of every story, there's a call to action. Right. So each person in the book really needed to have a way that people could get involved. They could donate, they could volunteer, they could replicate 
they could learn from their work in a much broader way. So there was multiple screens that we used to decide. It was quite a process. Could have done, written several books because there's so many great young people out there. Absolutely. Well, you make reference to your first book, so I want to just make our listeners aware of that. And that's simply called Stone Soup for the World, Life-Changing Stories of Everyday Heroes. And that honors 100 people, organizations, and companies from 65 communities and 29 countries around the world. And now this is the follow-up, Stone Soup for a Sustainable World, Life-Changing Stories of Young Heroes. And we're talking about individuals who were really motivated to act at very young ages, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, as you mentioned, relatives or children and grandchildren of leaders. For example, we have Anna LaPay, who is the daughter of Francis Moore LaPay, who wrote Diet for a Small Planet. You've also got Cesar Chavez's grandson talking about his continued work and the inspiration he received from his grandfather. I am very much dedicated to protecting our water. You know, it's certainly our first environment. It is essential for life. And so I was very much attracted to one of the young people from Canada who is a water walker. Tell me about Autumn Peltier. Oh, my goodness. Autumn is someone very special. As a matter of fact, my first interview was on Canadian television, and I talked all about Autumn. She's a water warrior because her great aunt had been. So she's carrying on the tradition of her First Nation people in Canada. And she talks about, and her videos that we have on our YouTube channel are really all about honoring the water as a source of life and um, how we can care for them and preserve them. She was actually the first recipient of the Institute's Young Heroes Award. She has often stood up to power to the Prime Minister of Canada and so forth to talk about water rights and to make sure that Indigenous people have access to clean water, which is not always the case. Yeah, in her video, she explains that individuals from her Native community have had boil water advisories for over 20 years. And she says it's almost like living in a third world country within a first world country. And I think that that absolutely mirrors what many indigenous populations experience here in the United States and abroad. Well, I agree. And my grandmother is has indigenous blood and from Canada, as a matter of fact. And so I learned at a very early age to be very careful with all of our resources as a child and also to respect the gardens and the earth. And so I've studied indigenous people no matter where I travel. And I find that we have so much to learn from them. And we have so much that we need to protect for them because they're really an endangered species. And so Autumn is one of the primary examples of that in the book. Right. And this is the beauty of working with young people is their ability to see something that's wrong. And it's almost a knee jerk reaction for them to say something. So those screens haven't been put in place yet. And she was such a brave young woman. She says, still, she says, sometimes she gets nervous. She gave her first big speech when she was 10 years old to a conference of First Nations people. 
just so our listeners know, not only do you have these very digestible stories in this book of the work that these young leaders have done, but as you mentioned earlier, you have a link to get in touch with the organizations on the work that they've done. You provide an inspirational quote. And then on your website, you've got information that can be used as lesson plans in classrooms, as well as just inspirational short videos for other young people to see and to be inspired or take inspiration from. Well, I'm so glad that you discovered all of that. In the next month, we will be completing the curriculum, which is a lesson plan for every one of the hundred stories. And we take the story as inspiration and apply it to language arts, STEM activities, sustainability initiatives, and sustainable career pathways. And then we have the next gen STEM standards for 20 states so that we make it easier for educators of all kinds to be able to bring these stories into their classroom. Mm, It's perfect. The timing couldn't be better because I think a lot of parents are concerned about exposure to COVID and they're doing more creative work in pods and they're doing more home education if they have the privilege to do so. But I think this could be an excellent resource for anyone who's trying to teach their children at home during these really difficult times. Let's talk about some other young leaders here. I wanted to talk about, on page 82, Parker from California and Antarctica. And there's a quote in there, difficulties are just things to overcome. And he's led a challenging life. He's kind of been an outsider, but he ends up documenting true climate change. And we can see it in places that are sometimes least accessible. So the polar regions, Alaska, of course, in island communities where the oceans are rising. Tell me about Parker and his work. The chapter or his story is titled To the Ends of the Earth and Back. Yes, it was really quite amazing to have Antarctica be able to be included in the book because it's an unusual place. Not a lot of people go there. And so he's an adventurer from the first order. And He was really, from a very early age, starting to be exploring that and learning from some of the more famous explorers like Robert Swan and experiencing the climate change. I think that's the key issue is how young some of these young people have experienced climate change. As a matter of fact, on our social media, we're featuring... Linus Dolder from Switzerland, and he talks about the glaciers melting. And he's now living in Germany and experiencing the floods. Mm. And so my heart goes out to these young people because the fact that they are experiencing such dramatic changes in their backyards, or when they just go out for a hike to a place like the Antarctic, as Parker did, it's really quite profound. Yeah, absolutely. We've got to take one break because we're halfway through. So let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Marianne Larned. She is the founding director of the Stone Soup Leadership Institute. And we are talking about her latest book, which is Stone Soup for a Sustainable World, Life-Changing Stories of Young Heroes. I want to jump to page 118, where we meet Evan Peter from Alaska. 
and he is looking specifically at agricultural pollutants and fish kills related to that, as well as warming. And he is the executive director of Nature Movement. Tell me about Evan. Well, I met Evan when he was probably 21 or so. He had become the youngest chief in his tribe in Alaska. And at that time, you know, just learning how to be a chief, if you will, and trying to understand the indigenous challenges that were being faced in Alaska. And he dropped out of high school and had challenges as other indigenous people in Alaska had at that time. But then he came back to the University of Alaska and received his MBA in Alaska Native Studies and just became such a role model for his community. And he's just completed that time and working more closely and really nurturing the language revitalization, which we find in our communities in Hawaii that we've worked with or in Martha's Vineyard, that that is now one of the central themes of Indigenous work is to revitalize the language that provides a sense of identity, self-esteem, pride, which is so important for the growth and development of the future leaders in these communities. Mm. And I love the quotes that you've selected from him. One of them is, I know some people in higher education expect me to go on to be a chancellor or president of a university, but my path has never been about career advancement, he says. It's been about finding the place where my heart and my passion are calling me to make a difference. He says he feels like language intersects with so many of the themes that are reflected in my human rights work, healing, self-determination, and leadership development of Alaska Native and other Indigenous peoples. And again, you've got a wonderful proverb that goes with this chapter, inspirational quotes always, and then the call to action where if you're moved by a story of one of these young leaders, you can connect with them, you can learn more about their organizational work. It's a great handbook and resource for anyone wanting to take action during these urgent times for climate change. I was also moved by Destiny Hodges' work. She is featured on page 146. I'm going to go to that page right now. She's an African-American woman. And of course, she is moved by the fact that her grandmother lives near a paper mill. And at a very young age, she recognized that the smell from that paper mill was horrific. And she wanted to understand more about this. And of course, we see so often that individuals who are poor, who don't have a voice in a community, oftentimes people of color, they are destined to have less strong education backgrounds. Their schools are being robbed, really, of fair resources. And they are often destined to be in places where the environment is being challenged. And I think what was so remarkable about Destiny's story is that she had to leave a school where she was being quite successful in a journalism program because they were resegregating schools in the South where she lived. Tell me more about Destiny and how she touched you. Well, I think the point that I was most interested in in Destiny is that she really had a promise as in journalism. And so journalists, as you know, are really challenged these days. And I guess Mr. Cronkite, of course, had instilled in me great and deep respect for journalism. So I think that 
the fact that she was able to write for this Northridge reporter and, and to communicate her voice and to try to share that with other people was very impressive. And that she was then able to leverage that, even though she had to change high schools, but she was able to leverage that into uh, Howard University and where she is now studying journalism and environmental studies combined so that that builds on her honoring of her grandmothers and her experience there and then helped to create the Howard University Student Sustainability Committee. So, you know, I think a lot of the stories are about how someone had faced a challenge and overcame it and in the process were able to support many more people. That's kind of the theme of the Institute's work is to use these obstacles as a lever to change our lives in the world. Mm. And what is so remarkable is that these young individuals are making such an amazing change in their communities and even globally by starting these nonprofit organizations. In Destiny's case, she started a non-governmental organization called Generation Green, and this chapter provides a link to that as well. I also wanted to talk about Kevin Patel, who was living in Los Angeles, and he had a physical a heart condition that was related to pollution in his community. And he became involved in raising awareness about communities that are affected by pollution and climate change. He started an environmental club at school, and he was blown away by how many people showed up to the first meeting. So just one simple gesture to start a club, and you realize just how many young people are very concerned about what's happening to the climate. Tell me more about him. Well, Kevin is someone that we've worked closely with for the book launch. He was part of our podcast in Los Angeles. And so I have a special affinity for him. He's founded something called One Up Action and has become quite a champion for the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and a great spokesperson. He's from Indian descent. And so He has a family that has really struggled during the pandemic. They have a restaurant and hotel and so forth. And so he tries to balance his contribution with activism, with support for his family, which a lot of our young people who are young people of color have to really be very careful about balancing both how they are involved in a community and then how they can support their families. But Kevin is one of the superstars in the book, and he's part of working alongside of many government leaders, like another person in the book is Jerome Foster, and he and Kevin are good friends. And Jerome is President Biden's Environmental Justice Council. He's 19. He's the youngest person on the council. So the two of them are in cahoots doing cool stuff together. They love to strategize and think about how can we magnify everyone's voices. Right. Well, I love the pull quotes you have from Kevin. He says, my activism is literally a survival tool. And even at a young age, he recognized the inequities in his community. He says, there are many issues in my neighborhood, homelessness, no access to healthy foods, and of course, air pollution. 
Already in middle school, he had been advocating on the issue of food inequality. And I love this quote. He says, our community is essentially a food prison. We don't have access to good food, organic foods like more affluent communities have. This is a real injustice and one that is near and dear to my heart, of course. But I'm so glad to see how all of these young people who at very young ages, they recognized a problem and now look at them thrive as they've gotten older and are working with national leaders and global leaders to sustain this change. We just have a few minutes left. And I have a page of people that I could pull out from this book, but I want to give you a chance to bring forth anyone that you especially want our listeners to know about. Well, building on the inequities in food and access to it, I was thinking about the story of sustainability for Black communities, where Eli Kenny talks about her grandmother and talks about learning from a young age about the importance of owning your own land and growing your own food. And having worked in inner cities and finding out that these food deserts that exist, it makes it very difficult. And the cost of healthy food, unless you can grow your own, makes it really impossible to achieve healthy lifestyles, making healthy decisions, and really raising a healthy family. So the inequities that we're seeing in those people that are more susceptible to the pandemic are those that have a less healthy lifestyle. So in order to build a more sustainable world, it's one of the most important things we can do is invest in the Black farmers as well as the Latino farmers, the farm workers, as you mentioned, with Cesar Chavez. These families are really struggling, especially during the pandemic. And I think those of us, I'm a health nut. I mean, I have mostly a plant-based diet. And I always, no matter where I am, I have to have fresh flowers and I like to grow my own herbs. And I take it for granted that I can always just go and find healthy food. And I think that we need to really be much more conscious of the fact that these young people, particularly like what Ali was talking about or Kevin was talking about, and so many others are aware of this inequity and are trying to do something about it. Mm, absolutely. You've got a quote from Jamie Margolin from Seattle, Washington. She says, we see what we want to see, not what we need to see. And I think that that is a beautiful way of helping us step back and question our environment and how we're treating it to move forward. So we just have a minute. Do you have a final charge for our listeners? Well, I think that we can listen to the young people is the number one thing I think is important. And their message is, especially with this IPCC report that's just come out, is that they really want to have more sustainable education in the schools. They really are concerned about the young people not learning about sustainability because it's not being taught in our schools by and large. And so I think that whatever we can do to try to share with the young people solutions that represent hope, that show them videos, that show them opportunities of people who are really part of a larger community who are trying to improve the world. I think it's super important for our young people that they have hope, especially during this pandemic. So whatever we can do, go on our website, share the book, watch the videos, but share it with the children and the grandchildren in our lives. 
That's a wonderful send-off message, Marianne. In closing, I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Marianne Larned, founding director of the Stone Soup Leadership Institute, and that's www.stonesoupleadership.org. I'll provide a link for our listeners. She's the best-selling author of the Stone Soup for the World series, and the book that we've been focused on today is Stone Soup for a Sustainable World, Life-Changing Stories of Young Heroes, truly an inspirational volume. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.